Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Rachel Thomas. And I'm Marianne Freiberger. There's been some huge news in the world of cosmology. For the first time, scientists have detected what they think might be a low-frequency hum of gravitational waves. The new results were published by the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, or Nanograph for short. And the Nanograph team were not alone. They coordinated with collaborations in Europe, India, Australia, and China, which released similar findings at the same time. In this podcast, we will find out what these new results mean and just why they're so exciting. We talked to three of our favourite cosmologists at the University of Cambridge, Michaelis Agathos, Amelia Drew and Ulrich Spierhaka. And apologies for the occasional background noise in this podcast. As we were recording our interview, the Centre for Mathematical Sciences in Cambridge was playing host to a large group of school students who were enthusiastically running around playing mathematical games in the background. But we started our interview by asking the central question, what are gravitational waves? Here's Ulrich. Gravitational waves are ripples in space-time. So what does it mean? The key change in our understanding of space and time by, that, that came as a result of Einstein's general relativity is that space and time are not a fixed stage on which we act. Intuitively, it looks like that. We do not, we think of absolute time, absolute space. But according to Einstein's theory, that's actually not the case. So my personal analog is to think of a Salvador Dali picture. Where everything looks curved and in flow and space and time are actually like that in our universe. So they evolve as well. They're curved, space-time is curved, and the phenomenon we regard as gravity is simply a manifestation of the fact that space and time are curvy, wobbly, and also change in time. And gravitational waves, or as they maybe should be called space-time waves, are simply wave-like patterns that propagate in this space-time um, very similar to the ocean waves we see on uh, in the Mediterranean or in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, so space-time can be wobbly and curved and have ripples running through it. But what is it that's causing this curving? So there's an analogy that people often use. Um, imagine a bowling ball placed on a trampoline. The bowling ball will create a dip in the trampoline and a less massive object, say a little marble, that rolls near enough the dip will roll into it. And that's the analogue of gravitational attraction. Einstein's general theory of relativity tells us that similarly, a massive body such as the Earth curves space-time in such a way that a smaller object nearby, say an apple that's dropped off a tree, will move towards the more massive object. 
So it's the curvature of space-time caused by massive objects that dictates how other objects will move. Now we have to admit that the analogy is a little bit wonky because with the trampoline, it's gravity itself that causes the bowling ball to create a dip in the trampoline because it's gravity that pulls the bowling ball down. When it comes to space-time, there's no other force causing the matter to curve space-time. It's just matter that does it. But as analogies goes, it isn't a bad one. Here's Amelia. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's kind of a phrase that's often said, which is that matter tells space-time how to curve, and then space-time tells matter how to move. So that trampoline, trampoline analogy is quite good because it shows you that if you put something heavy on the trampoline, that mass of the, of the thing you've put on there is telling the space-time how to curve. And then you put the smaller thing on the outside, that curve of the trampoline is then telling that smaller thing how to move around it. So yeah, that is a good analogy. Okay, so we have a malleable space-time that can be curved and the gravitational waves, those ripples in space-time, are caused by massive objects moving around in it. That's right. Here's Michalis explaining a common source of gravitational waves. It involves black holes, those regions of space-time where the gravitational pull is so strong that not even light can escape. Yeah, so the typical ideal source that we're looking at is uh, a couple of black holes that <clears throat> revolve around each other, are in orbit around each other. So they are an asymmetric system uh, that is dynamical, that moves in a, you know, in a kind of circular fashion, uh, and that causes gravitational waves to be emitted. So um, as the gravitational waves are emitted, this system loses energy, so this orbit gets closer and closer. So eventually these black holes will coalesce into, a, into what we call the uh, binary merger, and that will uh, result in a final black hole being formed. Okay, so Michalis is saying that you can have black holes spiraling around each other, getting closer and closer until they finally merge. And this causes gravitational waves to travel out through the universe. Yeah, that's right. Such a binary merger, as it's called, is what caused the very first gravitational wave that was ever detected back in 2015 by the LIGO collaboration to huge acclaim. It was the result of the collision and merger of two black holes around 1.3 billion light years away. And we were there at the Center for Mathematical Sciences in Cambridge when the announcement of the results was live streamed in 2016, and it was a really exciting moment. Einstein's general theory of relativity had predicted that gravitational waves should exist, but it took an enormous scientific effort to finally detect them. We asked Ulrich whether since then gravitational waves coming from other sources have been observed. Uh, we are very, very confident that we have observed another class of sources, namely neutron star binaries. It's still similar in the sense that instead of two black holes, you have two neutron stars. Or a neutron star and a black hole. Or a neutron star and a black hole, exactly. Uh, we're also pretty confident that at least one event is very likely, neutron star and a black hole. Uh, so there are other sources, however, these are the only types of sources we have observed with what well, we're pretty certain, with where we have high confidence that's the origin of the source. Mm -hmm. There is not now there is a very wide range of other possible sources. Uh, but none of the other sources has yet been observed 
with high confidence. So if gravitational waves have been detected before, what's new about these new observations? So previously, the waves that were observed came from isolated events, most likely the merger of two black holes or two neutron stars or a neutron star and a black hole. So if gravitational waves were sound waves, then that would translate into a single chirp that was observed. What has been detected now is very different. It's a constant low frequency hum. Scientists call this hum a stochastic background. Stochastic because it's random, there's no repeating pattern or anything like this in it. And background because it's always there humming away. Here's Michaelis again. So the, the main qualitative difference of the two detections in terms of the signal that we observe is that in one case we, in the case of uh, LIGO and Virgo and Kagra detector, the, the detector network, uh, that has been detecting events since 2015, uh, where we had the major breakthrough. Is so the, these type of sources are called transients, and they last for a fra typically a fraction of the second in case of uh, massive black holes, uh, and uh, up to a few minutes in the case of neutron star binaries. Uh, so in this case, so these are transient signals that we just observe and we analyze in isolation in our detector um, data stream. In this case, we are talking about uh, stochastic background. So uh, uh, um, a superposition of many unresolved sources contributing to this kind of background humming that happens in the space-time continuum. Right, and what causes this low-frequency hum? The most likely cause are many, many binary systems of black holes involving black holes that are much more massive than the ones involved in previous observations of gravitational waves. So if this hum is going on all the time, how come we haven't heard it before? It's because we are talking about a cacophony of gravitational waves rather than a single chirp that it took a long time to detect the hum. Here's Amelia. I think the reason, one of the main reasons is because it takes a huge amount of time to build up all the data because it's more of a statistical distribution over the whole sky. So you need a long time. I mean, LIGO needs also a long time to detect its signals, but for, to detect the stochastic background, you need to be able to take measurements for a very long time period. the first observation of gravitational waves was made by what was called LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. We heard Amelia mention it before. Laser interferometers use the fact that gravitational waves squeeze and stretch space-time. They are structures built here on Earth that can detect this squeezing and stretching by observing the minute differences between the laser beams that are sent traveling along the structure in perpendicular directions. The difference comes from the space being squeezed in one direction by a passing gravitational wave and stretched in the other. Yeah, that's right. Now with these new observations, this method wouldn't work because the laser interferometer you'd need would be so huge, you couldn't possibly humanly build it. So instead, scientists used something called pulsars. 
These are highly magnetized rotating neutron stars that emit beams of electromagnetic radiation. Here's Michalis. So pulsars are essentially neutron stars that are spinning uh, around their, their axis and they have some um, jet-like source of electromagnetic radiations that is spinning around and it's visible to us at very regular time intervals, like a, uh, like a lighthouse. Uh, so we have to be monitoring tens or hundreds of pulsars at the same time in our local neighborhoods. And we are looking at the arrival times of the pulses uh, very precisely. And then what we are looking for is some variation in these arrival times um, that are kind of correlated uh, among the pulsars, which would be an indication of a gravitational wave passing by and slightly um, uh, stretching or squeezing the dimensions of space as it passes by. So the, the light that comes from these pulsars takes a fraction of a, a small fraction of a second uh, faster or longer to reach us. So this kind of um, delay uh, in, in the arrival times of the pulses it's kind of giving us an indication about what has what kind of gravitational waves has gone through in the meantime. And if you correlate all these different signals from all the different pulses that you're monitoring, you can kind of build up uh, a, a picture about your um, your underlying gravitational wave. Right, so now I understand why detecting the hum involves such a lot of mathematics and statistics. You have to figure out all these correlations in the data that comes from the pulsars. Yes, and you have to disentangle the actual signal that comes from the gravitational waves from some general noise that you also detect. Because even though the pulsars emit their radiation at astonishingly regular intervals, there can still be ever so slight irregularities. And these need to be disentangled from the signals that are due to the gravitational waves, whose patterns you can calculate using the available theory. Here's Ulrich again. The gravitational wave has a systematic impact of how the deviations from one pulsar in one direction, say in the, in the Great Dipper, and another pulsar, say in Virgo, how they are correlated. Because the two deviations in these pulsar observations, they will be correlated in some particular way. It's called the Hellings and Downs curve, which plays a big role in this. And this becomes a more and more accurate way to disentangle these two contributions, the more pulses you have. That's why we need quite a lot of pulses. And this is what goes into this analysis. They've observed a lot of pulses and systematically checked for the correlations and searched for for impacts of this particular prediction for the, in, for the effect of gravitational waves. And as time goes on, this disentanglement of genuine noise and systematic deviation becomes more and more accurate. And they've now reached a threshold where they say, this is sufficiently confident now to, tell, to really conclude that we have a gravitational wave background that creates a systematic deviation.
that all sounds great, but why do we care? Why is it exciting to have observed a low-frequency gravitational wave hump? Well, of course, it's always exciting to observe something coming to us from outer space that we haven't observed before. And it's interesting to know that if the most likely explanation of the hum is true, this solves a question about extremely massive black holes, supermassive black holes, that has long been open. What I think is an interesting insight, even in the most mundane scenario where all these uh, all the signals actually generated by supermassive black hole binaries, even that already um, has provided information that we did not strictly have before. We knew these supermassive black holes exist in so far as one can know anything in science. In science, one can only be confident. When that mathematicians know science, in natural science, we, we, are, we are only confident. We were very confident these black holes exist at the centers of every galaxy. We also know galaxies collide. We also know that the black holes then kind of interact with each other. So you have two galaxies colliding. Each of them has a black hole. The black holes start orbiting each other. However, there was then a puzzle because these black holes, even if they get together and orbit each other, they would still be too far apart to actually be significant in terms of gravitational radiation. Um, the, the reason simply that in order to have a significant gravitational wave signals, the two black holes must be fairly close to each other. And there was a puzzle, how the hell do they get close enough? Gravitational waves themselves cannot do that because they're, they're too weak in that regime. So you need some other mechanisms to get the black holes close to each other. There can be third, part, uh, third party particles like stars being ejected, but there were problems with that. And people were at least uncertain whether the two black holes would actually ever get close enough together to generate significant gravitational radiation. So that problem seems to be nature has found a way to solve this. So if the most likely explanation for the hum is correct, then this shows that supermassive black holes can get close. Well, that's good to know. It is. But perhaps this most likely explanation isn't actually true. And the hum is caused by something far more exotic. Now, this is getting a bit mind bending, but hang in there. So physicists have suggested that when the universe was born in the Big Bang, it looked very different from how it looks today. It then underwent a series of very sudden changes called phase transitions. These sudden changes, these phase transitions, could also be behind the gravitational wave hum that's just been detected. Amelia is particularly interested in this possibility. We, we've talked a lot about um, what are called compact sources, so things like black holes and neutron stars, and when they, as you said, when they inspiral, they emit signals, and if you sum them up over the whole sky, you get what we've been calling a stochastic background signal. But another quite exciting thing about a stochastic background signal is that it can actually allow you to detect other kinds of sources that aren't so localised. So, for example, some particle physics models postulate something called a phase transition in the early universe, so that's similar to kind of if you're thinking of, say, water freezing into ice. Um, and that may have happened to our space in the early universe. And as that happened, some, some types of things can form, which are known as topological defects. Um, and a way, a sort of an analogous way of imagining this in the water and ice model is maybe you have some cracks through your ice once it's formed. Um, and they're kind of higher energy cracks throughout your system. 
Um, and actually measuring a stochastic background can enable you to potentially, so in these models, the evolution of these topological defects or the annihilation of them can create a background of gravitational waves and that's what's potentially possible to be measured via these stochastic background measurements. So as well as potentially being, as has been mentioned, kind of a, um, a superposition of lots of black hole signals is a very viable possibility, but there are also possibilities that some more exotic models may actually produce stochastic backgrounds as well. sounds like gravitational waves are not just interesting in themselves but they also provide a new window on the universe by observing them and analyzing the signals very carefully we can work out what caused them and this tells us all the things that are possibly going on out there in space yeah that's right they give us a new way of seeing and observing what's going on in the universe to finish off our interview, we asked Michalis, Amelia and Ulrich what kind of things they hope will be detected with gravitational waves in their lifetime. Well, I don't know if I have a personal favorite per se, but I, I would like to see uh, anything else type of scenario unfolding, like, you know, something that is out of the ordinary, is something that we are not expecting to see. So I would like to see something more than a background of supermassive black holes colliding. Uh, one already interesting fact is that this signal tends to be, seems to be slightly louder than we expected, which means that there are, uh, that the rate of this type of mergers is larger than our astrophysical models predict. So that's already an interesting science input. But this also leaves a possibility of a different type of source being contributing to this same background. So I'm looking forward to figuring out what kind of is actually the, the, the um, physical system that, is, that emits this type of radiation. Yeah, so I think for me, one of the most actually, I'm, I'm less focused in general on compact objects like black holes, even though I find them really interesting. Um, I think for me, one of the most important questions that we have at the moment in physics is what is the nature of dark matter? Um, and, you know, it's some of these dark matter models that lead to these stochastic background effects that I mentioned before. Um, and so for me, actually, not even necessarily just uh, topological defects, but any kind of stochastic background signal of some dark matter particle would be amazing. Like Amelia, Ulrich is also very excited by the possibility of finding out what dark matter is made of using gravitational waves. But he also hopes that we might observe gravitational waves whose so-called polarization is different from what Einstein's general theory of relativity predicts. Because if that's the case, then it would indicate that general relativity isn't the theory that explains it all, but that there's something more to the universe. I'd be very excited about that, not in the sense that general relativity is wrong. General relativity will always be an excellent theory, but we may have to extend it a little bit, to adjust it a little bit, to add a little bit more to it. And that could really be a strong clue for new physics. Well, we will keep listening to those gravitational waves and hope that they'll provide Michalis, Amelia, Ulrich and all the other physicists with what they like most, exotic new observations that can't be explained by the theories we already have. That's it for this episode of Maths on the Move. 
To find out more about this fascinating topic, go to plus.maths.org and search for gravitational waves. And incidentally, if you would like to know more about new results concerning dark matter, you can also listen to our recent podcast, A New Map of Dark Matter. Thanks for listening and bye-bye for now.